Why does Ferrari bother marketing to the 99% of its Instagram followers who statistically could not possibly own one of their vehicles? How did Netflix kill off Blockbuster by looking at how their customer buys rather than who buys? The answer is that both companies think very carefully about their evangelists, customers of the industry and custodians of the two brands, and how catering to them can benefit the business in the long and short term. Today, we're looking at how to identify your company's target customers. Welcome to episode 14 in my series on zonal marketing, a brand new model which uses the tactical lessons taken from football management to help you understand, plan and measure your marketing activity effectively. I'm Simon Vincent, the marketing tactician, and in this episode I'll be looking at how conducting an in-depth analysis of your company's customers and custodians can influence your marketing approach for the better. As always, I'll start with an example from the world of football and then we'll see what we as marketers and business owners can learn and apply to our own discipline. So let's dig in. It's easy to see football fans as simply being the ones that go to the stadium on a match day. To the players, certainly, they could be forgiven for thinking that these are the only fans that really matter. After all, it's the stadium attending fans that are able to impact the result of matches. It's they that cheer their team on, that sing the players' names, that become the fabled 12th man when the team is struggling. Indeed, fan bases like Liverpool's Cop, Borussia Dortmund's Yellow Wall and Lazio's Ultras are often credited with being the difference on big European nights, while managers like Atletico Madrid's Diego Simeone and Jose Mourinho can often be seen riling their fans up in the quest to get that little bit extra from their team. And traditionally, of course, this type of supporter would have been the only ones that mattered to the wider club. After all, it's they that pay for tickets, for food and for merchandise around the stadium. In a very real sense, pre-TV deals and global player brands, these fans were the ones that kept clubs alive financially. Not so much anymore. Most top flight clubs have moved the majority of their pre-season trips abroad. Why? To help build foreign fan bases. Playing in huge national stadia here, teams are routinely able to enjoy attendances of 60,000 plus, much more than the average game in England. Indeed, when Liverpool played against Manchester United in Michigan's big house stadium a few seasons ago, it was in front of a crowd numbering 100,000. But the effect can be most acutely felt in Asia, where, through dedicating multiple pre-seasons to the continent, the Red Devils claim to have amassed 107 million online followers in China alone. The same club, of course, brought in Korean player Park Ji-sung in part to help build their popularity within Asia. But we'll deal with the effect of player power in more detail in the next uh, essay. The lesson? Nowadays, football teams realise that developing a groundswell of support, even amongst those who may never pay the club any money directly and, and almost certainly have very little chance of visiting the stadium to support the team, they still hold value. 
And the same is true for businesses, as we'll explore in the next section. In marketing, we have an equivalent situation. Sure, every company needs customers, people who buy your product, the equivalent of those fans who show up week after week to support the team and buy their sausage rolls. But what about a company like Ferrari? If they, if the only people that they ever marketed to were customers, they'd be fishing in a very small pond. After all, there may be a great many of us who would like to be Ferrari customers, but who simply can't afford to be. And this is borne out in the statistics. The iconic Italian sports car brand has 21.4 million fans on just its main Instagram account, and that's not to mention the many sub-brands, fan accounts, and affiliated accounts that go along with Ferrari. By contrast, most estimates suggest that only 220,000 Ferraris actually exist in the world. That's 1% of the brand's number of Instafans. So why does Ferrari continue marketing to the other 99% by posting several times a day? Because in doing so, they increase their reputation, they build desirability, and they ensure the long-term viability of the brand. Remember back to when I spoke in one of the first videos about attack, transactional marketing, winning matches, but defense, tribal marketing, winning championships. This is why your company has to do some marketing that does not have an ROI. It's why attribution modeling is deeply flawed, in my opinion, and it's why you need a far wider reaching collection of metrics to track marketing success, but that's a subject for another video, which trust me is coming soon. So how to identify and actually improve your marketing through establishing your evangelists? That's what we'll discuss in the next section. Okay, so first things first, your product is not for everyone. Beige is for everyone. Beige is the color you make the carpets in a property you're trying to rent out because you know no one's going to be offended by beige, but equally nobody's going to fall in love with your rental property because of the beige carpets either. As a startup or scale-up company, you want and need your customers to fall in love with you. Therefore, you need to not be beige. In fact, Seth Godin, the godfather of modern marketing, recommends that you find what he calls your minimum viable audience. Stake out the smallest market you can imagine, he says. The smallest market that can sustain you, the smallest market that you can adequately serve. He says, this goes against everything you learned in capitalism school, but in fact, it's the simplest way to matter. When you have your eyes firmly focused on the minimum viable audience, according to Godin, you will double down on all the changes you seek to make. Your quality, your story, and your impact will all get better. And then ironically enough, the word will spread." End quote. The lesson, when you have a clear idea of who your minimum viable audience is and serve it accordingly, customers don't simply buy from you and then move on. They buy time, time, and time again, they even buy if the competition is cheaper and or more convenient. And best of all, they tell everyone who may be interested in your product or what about you, maybe even converting their friends away from your competitors and towards you in the process. Jordan has this catchphrase, it's not for you. 
it's his way of empowering businesses like ours to pursue what feels right for their business, building for its minimum viable audience rather than trying to pander to the masses. One of my favorite anecdotes of his is the one in which he explains why spam emails are always so obvious. So he says, if you've gotten an email from a prince offering to split millions of dollars with you, you may have noticed all the misspellings and other telltale clues that it can't possibly be real. Why would these sophisticated spammers make such an obvious mistake? Because, says Godin, it's not for you. Because they're sending a signal to those who are skeptical, careful and well-informed, go away. The purpose of the email is to send a signal, a, a signal to the greedy and the gullible, because putting anyone else into the process just wastes the scammer's time. They'd rather lose you at the beginning than invest in you and lose you at the end. Okay, now we've established that, let's go one step deeper, breaking our customer, our audience down into customers, the fans that show up every week, and the custodians, those that watch on TV screens from abroad, but who may be no less fanatical about what you do. Now here's the trick. When looking at customers, focus on them. When looking for custodians, you need to focus on yourself. Identifying your customers should be the easy part, but sometimes companies make it too easy on themselves. What a lot of them do is they just look at the who. They group into demographics based on age, sex, race, geographical location, or socioeconomical status. And all of these are fine. Knowing this basic demographic detail helps when it comes to selecting which channels you're going to use, for example. After all, some broadcast platforms, the Social media ones come especially to mind are predominantly used by people of a certain age. Similarly, it's well known that certain customer service channels, e.g. email and phone, are predominantly used by a different demographic. Similarly, there are some businesses for whom there are certain qualifying criteria that mean you can't be a customer unless you tick certain boxes. So B2B companies, for example, will often require that a customer of theirs is in a certain industry, uh, has a certain job title, etc. And acknowledging this at the start and targeting your, targeting your approach uh, appropriately is absolutely fine. However, What's often lost and what is infinitely more useful actually is the entire buying process that your typical customer goes through. Why do they buy from you? Literally, what was the thing that pushed them over the line? What do they buy? As in, which specific products do they tend to buy more than others? Where do they buy? Online? In store? When they're on the road? In their home? Or, or is it on the high street? When do they buy? Is it at the weekends, during the working day, late at night, at certain times of the year? And how do they buy? On card, with cash, on finance, outright, on a retainer, as a one-off? Filling in these details gives you a far more holistic view of your customer journey and may actually open up certain possibilities to adapt your marketing to better suit them. Asking these questions is how startup and scale-up businesses often turn industries on their heads and become the leaders of movements, slaying their more powerful predecessors in the process. How did Starbucks become the biggest coffee shop in the world? Because they realized that their customers wanted a different coffee drinking experience. They didn't want to just pay 50p for a lukewarm cup of coffee, drink it in silence for 10 minutes and then go. 
They wanted to meet people, relax, listen to Katie Melua records at the point of transaction. They looked at the why of the typical transaction and they changed it. And that's marketing. How did Netflix become the biggest name in movie and TV distribution in the world, despite offering themselves up to be bought by the now defunct video chain, uh, rental chain Blockbuster, being rejected of course. They identified a customer desire to have their entertainment provided in a different way, that facilitated a different means of paying, that created a whole new platform and so on and so forth. They looked at the how and the where of the typical transaction and changed it. That's marketing. Asking these questions may seem simplistic, but a bit of lateral thinking when coming up with the answers can be truly groundbreaking. Okay, moving on to how to identify custodians, and this is where, as I mentioned before, it begins with you, the company. The marketing and business leadership guru Simon Sinek is famous for his line that people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it. He says in his book, Start With Why, there's barely a product or service on the market today that customers can't buy from someone else for about the same price, about the same quality, about the same level of service, and about the same features. But if you ask most businesses why their customers are their customers, most will tell you it's because of their superior quality, features, price, or service. In other words, most companies have no clue why their customers are their customers. He repeatedly uses the example of Apple as a company that is able to attract a loyal fan base of custodians through clearly articulating, indeed, starting with their why. Everything we do, we believe in challenging the status quo, he says, imagining he's selling you an Apple product. We believe in thinking differently. This, explains Sinek, is Apple's why. Only once they've stated this do they go on to talk about their how and their what. The way we challenge the status quo is by making our products beautifully designed and simple to use. That's Apple's how. We just happen to make great computers. That is their what. It's for this reason, according to Sinek, Apple owns not just the letter I, but also the word I. iPhone, iPad, iPod. It signifies the individual, their creative spirit, their desire to challenge the status quo. And to an audience who finds that argument compelling, Apple's products are the most desirable on the market, despite being quantifiably inferior to their competitors in many respects. So if people don't buy what you do, they buy why you do it, the way to attract them to you is to articulate your why. Why did you start the company in the first place? Why do you love doing what you do? Why do you get out of bed in the morning? If your audience feels the same way, they will become custodians even if they never have the reason or the means to buy from you. In summary, identifying your target audience is about more than simply considering who buys your product. By thinking about the customer journey, what they buy, when, where, how, you can vastly improve your marketing and your product too, in some cases, even transforming industries. But it's also not just about considering who buys from you. 
If you want your company to exist long term, you cannot simply market to those who have purchase intent right now. This is where custodians come in to identify these. And with your minimum viable market in mind, you need to think from the inside out. Why does your business do what it does? How do you do it in a way that's differentiated? And my previous essay on adversaries will help with that. And only then making it clear what you sell and how that ladders up to the above. Okay, I think that's about enough for today. Check back here every week for a new episode of Zonal Marketing, each one explaining another part of the marketing process through a footballing lens. If you're enjoying what you're watching, please do like, comment and share. I'm available for speaking gigs, training sessions and client work. And if you'd like to talk to me about any of that, you can do so by visiting my website x-cmo.com. In the next episode, I'll be looking at the role of brand identity in developing a marketing mix. To do that, I'll be testing your knowledge about the origins of ice cream brand Haagen-Dazs, and I'll be investigating how and why James Rodriguez was signed by a club with just over 4% of his total number of Instagram followers. Until then, thank you for your attention. Thank you.